Dead Can Surf. That's what the Dead Rocks are telling us with the song Dead Can Surf. It appears on their album International Brazilian Surfs, and it's on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. I'm your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and I am bringing you episode 136 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, and we are continuing our discussion of a definitive classic, this one from Disney. We're talking about the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea film from 1954, and I'm not doing it alone. Scott and Tracy Morris are the high muckety mucks of the Disney Indiana podcast, and they are here to talk some more about this film with us here on Monster Kid Radio. Now, in the last episode, we kind of talked about the cast, the crew, what went into it, some of our favorite scenes, that sort of thing, and we stopped just shy of talking about the one definitive element that makes this movie Monster Kid Radio fodder. I'm talking about the giant squid. So we're going to kick off our discussion or get back to the discussion about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea with Scott and Tracy by talking about that squid. But before we get to that, let me tell you about our website at monsterkidradio.net. This is where you can find everything you need to know about the show between episodes. From here, you can find links to, well, every song that's ever been played here on Monster Kid Radio, like the song Dead Can Surf. You can find links to our Amazon store, our live 365 internet radio station where you can hear music and sounds from monster movies from the 30s to the 60s, as well as our Patreon page where you can help support Monster Kid Radio by becoming a patron. We also have a presence on Facebook. You can find us by looking up Monster Kid Radio over there. We have a page and we have a group. Now, the group is where the discussions happen, and I'd love to see you there if you're a user of Facebook. Just head on over there and check that out. We're going to go ahead and get to that giant squid. Nobody wants to keep a giant squid waiting. So we're going to get to that right after this. Hi, my name's Keith Foster. I write an original giant monster comic called Kadoja. And right now, there's a live Kickstarter to fund a graphic novel collecting the first five issues. Now, this comic has a soundtrack. A fusion of orchestral Godzilla scores and funk. The perfect musical companion to your giant monster reading. You can get your own copy right now. Just look on Kickstarter for Kadoja, a kaiju graphic novel. Here's to giant monster destruction. Whatever you have imagined in your wildest dreams now becomes a visual reality. As Jules Verne's most fantastic adventure in space and time becomes an amazing film experience. Lighten the basket, we gotta gain height. The man whose great stories inspired such unusual films as Around the World in 80 Days, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth, surpasses them all with Mysterious Island. Starring Michael Craig, who triggers the screen's most thrilling escape, Gary Merrill as a war correspondent, Joan Greenwood, shipwrecked on the mysterious island. 
And in this story of survival, Michael Callan and Beth Rogan. Come on. What's it doing? I don't know. Seeing us in. Also starring Herbert Lom as the mysterious Captain Nemo and his fabulous submarine, the Nautilus. Aren't we able to do anything to save ourselves? Nothing that can be done. Super Dynamation, newest and greatest screen process, astonishes the eye with such scenes as the fight to the death with a prehistoric devilfish. The discovery and destruction of an underwater city. Mysterious Island. Photographed on land, under the sea, and in the air. Truly a first in motion pictures. Disney presents 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Of all the great novels of adventure and imagination, none has surpassed Jules Verne's spectacular story of the mystery submarine, the Nautilus. Millions have been fascinated by the fantastic exploits of Captain Nemo, who ruled a vast undersea empire. The book, an all-time bestseller, has been translated into 18 languages. And now Walt Disney brings it to the massive Cinemascope screen in Technicolor. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Starring Kirk Douglas, James Mason, Paul Lucas, and Peter Lorre and a tremendous cast. Make room in your memory for an unforgettable experience. Actually filmed in the depths of the sea. Don't miss Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Shall we move on to the squid? I think it looks great. I mean, it looks like a 1950s monster movie monster, but I still think it looks great. The tentacles on the squid uh, measured 40 feet long, and it took 24 men to operate him using hydraulics, electronics, and compressed air to give it that lifelike appearance. It could move its head and uh, rear end up eight feet out of the water rolling its eyes around, snapping its beak, and then the 40-foot tentacles could reach out and coil around anything it touched. Yeah, you said it looked like a 50s monster to you. Yeah. I really don't think that. I think it looks a lot better, at least in the scene that was actually filmed in the movie. It moves a lot more lifelike than something I would expect from 1954. You know, what I always go back to when I see the squid, and I know this is going to sound funny, is Bride of the Monster and the octopus. <laughs> I mean, you're going total opposite extremes here. But you, you see, think? Yeah, but you see how no budget in Bride of the Monster, how a character like a squid or an octopus, which are similar, would act in the fact that the star has to make it move. And then you see this... It has money behind it and has the genius of these engineers and everything that put it together and how what you could do if you had the money as compared to what you could do if you had no money. And the films aren't that far apart. No, that's true. And to kind of 
back up to what I said there first. Well, actually, to react to what Scott just said, I don't think it's just a matter of money. I think it's a matter of having real talent and skill here. I mean, we are sure. talking about the Disney machine, and the people who worked with Disney were <laughs> were no slouches. I mean, they had to be geniuses to thrive in that environment. But to kind of get back to what I said about it, it looks like a, a 50s monster movie monster. I don't mean that in a negative way. I love the 1950s monster movie monsters. What I think makes this monster work best, though, as awesome as the design and the engineering is, the decision to go back and reshoot it with the storm yes. gives it that edge. Have you seen the original shots? The no, sun, I have The Sunset Squid? It is on... <laughs> the Sunset Squid, is that what they call it? That's what it's called, the Sunset Squid sequence. Okay. It is on the two-disc DVD set of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I watched it last night. It was originally shot with a calm sea. It was clear. It was was like around sunset. So you've got that red lighting. And the squid looks a lot more mechanical. It looks very much fake. It looks a lot more fake. And... Richard Fleischer, the director, didn't really care for it. Walt Disney saw the dailies, and he didn't care for it. They got talking, and Disney and the screenwriter kind of came up with the idea of, how about we film it during a storm? That way we've got, it's, it'll be darker, there'll be the rain, it'll add in these other visual elements that might kind of distract from the more mechanical, fakey, aspects of the squid. So basically they're doing a lot of what CGI companies are doing today when they have the monsters that look too CGI. Well, let's film it in low light or with rain or something to hide some of the limitations of our creature. Well, and I was going to say there's a reason why most of the dinosaur attack scenes in Jurassic Park 2 take place at night or Godzilla took place at night Mm -hmm. because it kind of masks that a little bit and gives it a little bit of camouflage, I suppose, to hide the pixels. Well, and that's not the only bit of hiding that they do in this film. Early on, the first ship that gets sunk by the Nautilus, you know, they've got some scenes where it's underwater and sinking. And when they first saw the dailies, they could see the strings from that were attached to the ship. So what they did is they animated bubbles that went around where the strings were and, and in other places to hide the strings. It's like they're an animation company. Let's animate some bubbles. Well, that's not the only time they animated a few things on screen. I caught when the three are running from the island and the natives are shooting arrows and all that at them. You can tell that they animated the arrows and the spear into the shot with our three leads so that they didn't actually have to have arrows shot at them. One of the things uh, about the, the natives that I wanted to touch on real quick is a lot of the natives, you know, they did their own makeup, you know, just putting more paint on or whatever uh-oh. And uh, Tracy ran uh, across this last night where some of them actually wrote phrases on their foreheads, <laughs> but you can't see it in the film because it's like in a long shot or something. And there's one cannibal that has on his forehead, eat at Joe's. And another one next to him says, I ate Joe. <laughs> That's awesome. I really hope somebody took a picture of that. that whoever, like a descendant or a relative of one of those people has a, a photo at home. I, I would hope these so. Two together. Yeah, I, that's awesome. <laughs> well, and, and speaking of the natives and animation, of course, once they get onto the Nautilus and the captain flips the switch to electrify the exterior, of course, all the little lightning bolts and such were animated. Oh, yeah. 
I don't know. There's something about electrifying an object in the ocean that I really kind of struggled with. I, I don't know why. I, if I but... remember right, that came directly from Vern, okay. was having the exterior being able to make it electrified. I agree with you. I don't know enough about electrics, electronics and physics to know if that is valid or not. But hey, their electric eels exist. So, oh, that's a good point. So we'll that's go with point. it. Sure. Why not? Science! So I wanted to ask about the Royal Penthe. And I didn't spend enough time online to research this. That's where the name came from for the planet in Star Trek VI, right? You've got to think so. Yeah. I don't the prison know. Planet. I don't know if that name is from the original Vern source material. I did not have a chance to read the novel before we recorded this. So if, if any of uh, the MKR or Disney Indiana listeners are familiar with the Vern novel and can tell us if Ruropenthe came from that or if that came from the uh, film, let us know. The view that you get of Ruropenthe, even though you're, you don't get close up of anything that's going on, but you've got that scene with the professor and Nemo are talking and Nemo's laying out how that place worked and how he escaped. You can see where he, Nemo gets a little bit of his craziness from it. That place was just amazing in its creepiness. Yeah. You see them just whipping that line of, of men carrying the stuff to load the ship. Right. It's, just, it's so desolate, so bleak. Yeah. And from the little bit of reading I've done, it's somewhat true. There were these islands out in the Pacific that were basically birds had been living there for generations and generations and generations with the associated um, leavings. And though that was guano that was mined to create nitrates for gunpowder. And I can't imagine working there would be a pleasant thing to do, and people wouldn't go there voluntarily. We're saying it looked creepy, and it did, certainly. And the things that actually happened there are terrible. But I think I'd rather go there than the Royal Penthe from Star Trek VI. <laughs> well, I do, it would be warmer. Yeah, This is true. I do like the way it's portrayed in this film. They don't actually give you a close-up shot of what's going on. They leave yeah. a lot of it to your own imagination and, and just what you're being told. And I thought that was an excellent way of making this place be as despicable as it needed to be. Well, I mean, it is a Disney film, and it's a family film, so they don't want to get too dark with it. And they didn't have to. For an older audience member watching the movie, they're going to be able to pick up on these things without having it explained to them or spelled out to them. I wanted to build on what you were talking about, the fact that this was a Disney film and how, yeah, they, were, okay. how they were showing Rarapente. What was your impression of what was powering the Nautilus? We do spend some time in the power room, and there's a really cool scene where Captain Nemo shows off to the professor how it works with the, the way the light filled the frame and kind of there's a lens flare and you've got the professor behind a very heavy armored piece of metal, and you see everybody else in the background turning their heads away from and shielding themselves from whatever it is that the professor is looking at. Now, my impression is that if this was a real scene, if this was not a film, but this was something that was happening in real life, you would not have been able to see the professor's eyes. It would have had some sort of shielding. Yes. But for the purposes of the film, you do get to see his eyes, and his eyes get a little wide. Like, oh, my God, it's nuclear, right? It's, it's something... Big deal here. It felt very, there's like the power of a sun in there or something. You've got that. And, and I agree with you. I, I believe that it's nuclear as well. They never come out and say that. But then right. you also have the explosion at Volcania later on that sort of kind of looks like a mushroom cloud. Mm-hmm. 
look at when this film was made, 1954. What right. is in recent memory that would produce an explosion like that? Well, you've got the, the Japanese, the ending of World War II. Mm-hmm. But again, this is Disney. They don't want to say nuclear because of the bad feelings and nightmares and everything that goes with that phrase at this time of the world. Well, and additionally, Disney was involved in the war effort. Exactly. You know, so, you know, you don't want to put the criticisms in there. You don't want to be critical of it. I mean, at that point, I have to imagine nuclear is a good thing. Yes. But this also ties into a lot of 50s movies where, you know, people think nuclear is a good thing. They show it in this film to powering the Nautilus. But then again, good things. You've got Captain Nemo saying the world may not be ready for nuclear power or this power that I've created. Right. That's very similar to a lot of 50s movies because a lot Mm -hmm. of the monsters come from the nuclear bomb or exposure or something. Science. Science going maybe where it shouldn't go. Mm You've got the tarantulas. You've got the Attack of the 54 Womans. You've got the Amazing Colossal Man. You've got all these large things that are coming to get us because of something bad science and because – some scientists thought they were helping the world or whatever. And I honestly think this is Disney's way of giving that message that maybe nuclear is not quite the right thing to do, but instead of it creating a big monster, it's just creating something that yet it could be helpful, but we may not be ready to control it yet. I definitely got that vibe. And Nemo's very protective of it. Very protective. Yes. A lot of it comes through uh, James Mason's performance as Nemo. Very protective of everything on the ship, his crew, his technology, and that power source, which that scene, like I said, I would have imagined that there would have been some sort of shading or protective lens in that helmet. But I'm glad there wasn't because you do get to oh, see yeah. the professor's eyes just kind of go wide as the lens flares filling the screen, Abram style. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that shield that he's hiding behind it, well, it's got to be lead. Sure. But it only came down to like mid chest. Yeah, it's true. It came down, well, about to his waist, so his legs would have been exposed. And then, of course, you see people in the background that are, you know, their arms are over their eyes and they're faced away. They would have been exposed. And then, of course, at the end, where you've got our three main characters in the in the skiff, they weren't far enough away from that explosion. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, when you see Nemo cover his eyes, of course, that makes sense. But then you go to the reverse shot or the shot back on the professor, and you see the characters in the background covering their eyes, and you're like, oh, wow, this is yeah, this is bad. <laughs> that, that scene is really, really well done all the way around. It's a It's a creepy scene, but there's that level of like discovery and fantasticness Mm -hmm. to that scene for me, as much as we like to squid, we talked about the squid being and how cool it was. And the whole sequence It's very thrilling to me. The creepiest scene in the entire film is near the beginning of the movie. When Ned, the professor and Peter Laurie's character are in the, the long boat and they've been discovered, you know, Nemo and crew know they're there because they've been poking around the Nautilus and all that, which you know, it's unfortunate they got caught, although why Nemo left the place unattended, I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, how but, unattended was it? Because there no- was th- three guys in the area of the ship that where they go in and out that hole in the bottom of it. Oh, there uh, must have true. been more than that because there were probably a good dozen men that were already in their normal crew attire when he, Nemo, Nemo, because Nemo is the first diver to come back in, we think. And he's still in his suit, and he sends all his men out to, you know, capture the intruders. So So my favorite... Where were they the whole time? And and this leads into my favorite, most creepy scene. My favorite creepy scene in this film is when they're in the longboat, and then the divers just start popping up along each side of them. Yes. Yes. 
the diving suits have just enough of an alien quality to them. I'm a sucker for underwater monster movies anyway, and you know, there's just a feel to that that I really enjoy that I feel like the Disney company really played off of. It's just kind of creepy to see them all popping up kind of all at the same time. It's it's scary. On either side <laughs> of the boat. I mean, boom, 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 boom. There's yeah. like, you, it's surrounded very quickly. You're surrounded by these things and these alien-looking steampunky suits. What are you going to do? Start hitting him with your paddles. About the only yeah, thing you can do. As, yeah, which, with the paddle and, and if you look, he has beaten that oar to shreds by the time. Oh, it breaks, actually. Captured. Yeah. But I'm like, I don't know if I would have wanted to be one of the stuntmen getting hit by that. <laughs> it, maybe it was balsa, but still. Yeah, I, I don't know. You mean I'm the one who drew the short straw for Kirk Douglas to go after with an oar? Man. Because <laughs> I can't imagine Douglas pulled his punches. No. Not with that. Well, well we I, obviously it, know he doesn't pull his punches because of the scene later on when they're escaping the um, cannibals. <laughs> when he first gets to the boat, and this is one of the things that Tracy pointed out to me last night that we did some research on. If you notice the skiff, it's sitting up higher in the water, and you can tell by the water line on the side of the boat. Well, the reason for that is that's a wood boat, not a metal boat, even though it's made mm -hmm. to look like metal. So they put sandbags in the boat to make it sit lower to look like it's heavier. Well, when Kirk Douglas gets out to the boat and hops in, the crew forgot to put the sandbags back in after they had put it out on the beach. So when he his first uh, rowing motion, he's thinking the boat is heavier than it is, and it's also sitting higher. He doesn't actually hit the water. You see him flail around and fall backwards in the boat. Which I know is a mistake. It wasn't, uh, well, mistaken that it wasn't scripted. But it works so well for his character. Oh, yeah, because he's panicking. It, it was perfect. Uh, they made the right decision to leave it in. But that's what, what happened. Do so you know that Kirk Douglas was giving it his all physically uh, for these uh, moves and stuff? He was a dashing, you know, leading man type. He was rugged. And, I mean, he brought his physicality to this. So I, I love that scene. I think that's a fun. I'm glad that it was his character doing that. I think it would have played off too jokey jokey it was like a peter laurie character doing that or something right. but having it happen to douglas and he it doesn't even phase him nope you know it's just like oh okay you know back to it you know it's great because he's an actor a very good that's one. right well and it, it gives the impression that ned lance used to maybe <laughs> true <laughs> you know having a few problems here and there every once in a while you know speaking so some more comedic moments i love the scene where there's a, a couple scenes but where he's getting drunk basically there's the first scene where mm. he and Lori they're starting collecting the bottles to of the, specimens. of the specimens because he's wanting to send messages overboard then realizes that well there's alcohol in there so he's like let's not let the alcohol go to waste and he drinks it and he ends up drinking one of the specimens and what was it a, a blastolina abelina or something, something like, like that, that yeah <laughs> Which, again, later on in the film, he's like, oh, I've had these before. And when he gives one of them to the seal, you'll love them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, this movie's got a lot going for it. And I think it definitely is something that if Monster Kids haven't seen this uh, in a long time, because I can imagine you grew up in the 70s or 80s without having seen this on video or TV at some point. I mean, movies from the 50s, so I'm sure Monster Kids from that generation saw it theatrically. But if you haven't seen this movie in a long time, I think it holds up. Oh, and also more towards the Monster Kid audience than the Disney Indiana audience. Don't let the fact that this says Walt Disney Productions 
make you not want to see this film. No, not at all. And there's no reason to. This movie's got a lot going for it. I mean, it's got the Disney charm. Sure, it's got the one musical number, and it feels Disney-ish in spots, but that's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's to me, it is a solid action-adventure movie from the 50s, you know, with some monster elements, with a lot of the steampunk elements. And it's just a great story. Yeah, it really is. It really is. is. It really is. Now, I have to admit, I've never read the original 20,000 Leagues, ever. But I feel like it's one of those things that's in the pop culture that I know enough about the story to to get by. Have either one of you read the original novel? I had the classics illustrated version when oh. I was young. You remember those books? Uh-huh. Awesome. Well, I had a bunch of them. And so I, I, I know the story from that. I have not read the original novel. I have not read it either. And this isn't the first time this film what, or the story was adapted for film. Yeah, 1916? Yeah, there. in fact, Car- Harper Goff said he was somewhat inspired by that silent film. And the areas in the Bahamas that they filmed was the same places that they filmed some of the scenes for that film. Really? Well, that's cool. You can go back to that. Or have either of you seen any other versions of this film? Not that I can think no, of. No, the closest I can think of, and, I, and we were talking about this last night that Tracy and I were and we can't remember the name of the show but there was a show on Sci-Fi Channel a couple of years ago that would deal in movie memorabilia there was this group of auction people that oh, would Oh yeah, I forget the name of the show Pro- too Profiles in History is the name of the company right. I don't remember what the show is called And they, yeah. get, they get a call one day that there is a prop of the Nautilus that they have to come and see and of course they all jump to the conclusion that it's from this film and when they go to see it, it's from another production of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It's not the Disney uh. Nautilus. It was still a cool-looking ship, but it wasn't as cool as, the, as this one. Now, this one, if, if you want to see a very detailed model of this, uh, right now, through the end of the year, if you're anywhere near the Chicago area, the uh, Museum of Science and Industry has a Disney Archives exhibit, and they've got, is it about 15 feet I long? I think they've got the 11-foot model. The 11-foot model of the Nautilus there. So if you're anywhere in the Midwest and or near Chicago and you want to see the Nautilus, the, the model, it'll be there till the end of the year. Now this movie had, or excuse me, this book had been adapted since this as well. There had been some TV, like animated features and some other things. I guess uh, Michael Caine appeared in one of them. And I am now noticing this thanks to Wikipedia, 30,000 Leagues Under the Sea starring Lorenzo Lamas. Oh my Next week on Monster Kid Radio. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No. Here's hoping he was Ned Land and not Captain Nemo. It says he's Aranox. Oh, Oh, that's even worse. (laughs) Who's the professor? I don't think we've actually mentioned his full name, but that's the professor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we'll pass on that one. I think we can, I think we can pass on that one. Now, Captain Nemo is again pop culture. There's everybody knows who Captain Nemo is, and this is not the only film to feature a character named Captain Nemo, and he happens to have a sub named the Nautilus. Please right? don't, please don't talk about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Please, no, I'm, I'm not bringing up <laughs> League, of Ex- which is a great comic book. Yes, the movie is horrible. The movie's pretty rough. <laughs> How is this film connected to, is it Island on Top of the World? 
That came out in 1974, and I think probably the only connection is they're both Jules Verne. Okay, but that was a Disney film too, wasn't it? Yes, yes it and was. that was the the Hyperion. Was yeah, the, the airship. airship. That they, they oh, that's right. It was an airship. That's right. That they take up to um, Astrogard, which is the Where island. The Vikings are. The Vikings are, yes. Yeah. Descendants of Vikings. Okay. I could have swore there was another film that had a Nemo character in it, and even the Nautilus from around the same time. I could be blanking on it. Though. Well, I am blanking on it, though. Well, I know on our last episode on Disney Indiana, we talked about one area of Disneyland that was planned and never made was Discovery Bay. Maybe that's where I'm kind of getting my my wires crossed. Yeah, Discovery Bay would have been an area that would have been themed to this time frame, San Francisco. And in the bay, you would have seen the Nautilus, and there was also a ride where you would have boarded the Hyperion and flown up to the island uh, on top of the world. But the area was never built. It was uh, planned in the uh, the seventies, and unfortunately, the island at the top of the world didn't do extremely well at the box office. And that was one of the reasons why it never manifested itself in a Disney park. Gotcha. The mysterious island. That's where I where my ah, brain was okay. kind of going, which is right. not Disney. No, it is supposedly a sequel to Nemo's story in Jewel, the Jules Verne book. Nemo doesn't die. His he spoiler. His, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the mysterious island is the sequel that Jules Verne wrote. And I'm. Sh- did you see who filmed it? It's not Disney. No, I it's would- not Disney. But Harryhausen did ah. some stop motion on that, which I think is also another reason why it was on the forefront of my brain. Yep. And Herbert Lom plays Captain Nemo, who plays the Phantom in the Opera and the Hammer version, which we're talking about at 1951 Down Place in December. Yes. Huh? You see that? Yeah. <laughs> hey. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I have all three podcasts. <laughs> I do remember The Mysterious Island as well, and I think I saw it on VHS around the same time as 50,000, 50,000, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. <laughs> What's 30,000 Leagues Among Friends? That's true. Well, Lawrence Alamos shows up at the 30,000 mark, so. <laughs> yeah, you want to skip that one. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm a big fan of this film. I think it's a great film that people need to see. I love the design. I mean, we talk about the steampunkness of it. I think the performances are great. I think everything about this movie is enjoyable. I was just going to say, speaking of that design, it did win two Academy Awards. And that's where I was going. Yeah. <laughs> 1955, uh, Best Special Effects and uh, Best Art Direction, Set Direction. And the television show on the making of the film Operation Undersea, which was filmed by Disney, of course, won the 1954 Emmy for Best Individual TV Program of the Year. Oh, wow. That's cool. Well done, Disney. <laughs> and I, I don't think when we were talking about some of the props and such, we forgot to mention one more item that has survived from... Oh, yes. We've got to talk about the organ. Yes. Oh, please, so yeah. The, yeah the, the organ that, that uh, Captain Nemo plays several times throughout the film. Now, the, the actual, not the pipes, just the organ, the organ it's, itself. If you want to see that today, it's pretty easy to go see it. You do have to go to Disneyland, and you have to ride, the, haunt, you have to ride the Haunted Mansion. <laughs> In the ballroom scene, kind of in the middle of the attraction. At the far left. Far left-hand side, that is the original organ console from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, they made a replica of it for the Walt Disney World version of the attraction and the Tokyo attraction. I don't know about Paris or... 
Well, Paris being Hong Phantom Kong. Manter, I don't know. We've not been there, so I unfortunately don't know. But the ride is, is duplicate in similar, not really a duplicate anymore, but similar in California, Florida, and, and Tokyo. But the actual one in California is the same keyboard organ that was on the ship. How cool is that? Nice reuse of material. Yeah, that's true. And, well, I mean, it's got the history, which, you know, as I get older and I hear about Disney cycling out certain attractions and that sort of thing, it kind of bums me out a little bit to think that the Disneyland I went to when I was a kid isn't there anymore. I mean, it's completely different at this point with the Finding Nemo, supplanting 20,000 leagues, that sort of thing. But to know that there are still pieces here and there, mm-hmm. and to know that some of it's in, well, the Haunted Mansion, which is... My jam. That's cool, you know. <laughs> well, even Walt Disney himself said that Disneyland would never be completed. Yeah, I know. I so. know. I. But I, I agree with you. Back in my day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we really miss the submarines at Walt Disney World. Yeah. Speaking of that organ, the three of us recently talked about Phantom of the Opera here on the show on Monster Kid Radio. When Nemo's playing the organ, mm-hmm. granted, Phantom is a silent film. I couldn't help but think a little bit of Phantom, just the way he was kind of getting into playing the organ. Oh, I definitely got that yeah. that vibe as well. Now, Tracy's the musical choice is nice and spooky. So, yeah, another little bit of trivia I read is that James Mason does not play piano, but he took the time to learn what the appropriate fingerings would have been for that piece. So and the close up, so the close up where you see it. it's it's what where his hands should have been and what they should have been doing. And the uh, Disney company actually got a letter from a organist saying he'd never seen such exquisite, such an exquisite performance of the Toccata and Fugue in B. Even though he wasn't really playing it. <laughs> That's awesome. So basically he learned how to play the organ phonetically. I, I don't know, but <laughs> he, he faked it real good. <laughs> yeah, he did air organ. <laughs> So this film, is it available on DVD, Blu-ray? Where can people see it now? I, I saw it streaming on Amazon. A couple of years ago, Disney put out a DVD, what we have. It's a two-disc special edition that uh, had a whole bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff. It had some original radio trailers from the film. It, the Sunset Squid sequence that we mentioned earlier. That is available, or at least it was. I'm, I'm looking to see if it's still available. I was about to ask, is it still available or is it a Disney DVD that now sells for like 100 plus bucks on eBay? Nope, it is still available. In awesome. Fact, in fact, right now, the Disney and it's a DVD, Amazon is listing it for $9.13 for the two-disc special edition. Hello, Amazon wish list. <laughs> and it, unfortunately, it does not appear to be available on Blu-ray. I think that would be a good choice because I think it would look wonderful. Well, 30,000 leagues is. Really? <laughs> Got to pay that uh, Lamas bill. <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah. You know, we're we're joking about, you know, the Lamas version. This movie's been in talks of another adaptation or people are calling it a remake, but, you know, whatever. But uh, besides it's not the, happening, right? Yeah, it, no, I hope not. <laughs> uh, there's also the original soundtrack uh, by Paul Smith is available on Amazon as well. And it's, I went uh, looking for it. I couldn't find it. Oh, I'm looking at it right here. It's a 1999, and they say only four in stock. Order soon. You can also, they've got somebody selling a 2011 Hallmark uh, 
Christmas ornament of the Nautilus. That'd be cool. I mean, the music in this is great. I think it definitely is something that needs to be on your DVD shelf if you're a self-respecting monster kid, especially for that price point. Come on. Yeah. Ten bucks and you can get a, a two-disc DVD version with tons of really cool extras. This movie also kind of sort of inspired one of my Disney guilty pleasures. I bring it up because this is a crossover episode with Disney Indiana, and that's The Black Hole from 1979. I love The Black Hole. I love The Black Hole. You guys have never covered it on the show, have you? We've never covered it, and I've thought about talking with you to see if you wanted to do it here on Monster Kid Radio, but it is outside of your timetable that you usually go with because it was from the, the 70s. If only we knew somebody who did a Disney show that we could put that conversation on. Should we pencil you in, Derek? <laughs> Let's pencil me in. Yes, I, The Black Hole is one of those films that I loved when I first saw it. Unfortunately, it comes out about the same time as Star Wars does. Well, and, didn't it come out kind of as a result or a reaction yeah, to right. the Star Wars boom? And it's still more in the theme of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, that type of storytelling, as opposed to just a very broad action that Star Wars is. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people look at the black hole and seeing it being very slow, very... Very talky. Very talky. But I love the black hole. Oh, man, I loved it. I saw that. I saw that theatrically as a kid. I loved that movie. I haven't watched it in years. I hope it holds up. So this recording is going to appear on Monster Kid Radio and Disney Indiana. It will be appearing on Monster Kid Radio on the 23rd and 25th of September. And then a version of this will also appear on Disney Indiana, which is next Sunday, the 28th. That's correct. And this is part of a steampunky kind of series on Disney Indiana where you're looking at... Subaquatic Steampunk September. Yes, because we talked about, in our last episode, we talked about Atlantis. And then we talked about Discovery Bay, which would have uh, both fit in that theme. So people need to check that out. Monster Kid Radio listeners, go over to Disney Indiana, listen to the show, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Tell Scott and Tracy I said hi. Yep, and if you are listening to this on Disney Indiana, please check out Monster Kid Radio. Uh, this is um, great discussions of lots of classic And not so films. classic. And not so classic <laughs> monster films. Derek always brings out great guests that talk with him on these films and are very knowledgeable. It's a highlight of my week to listen to it, so highly recommended. <laughs> and the fact that you and I have both been on it might influence your views slightly. Yeah, th those episodes, you know, they're the best. But <laughs> no, that's not true. It's not true at all. I love having you guys on. We're going to have to have you on again in the future. I love having you guys both on the show uh, individually and together. So we'll have you back on Monster Kid Radio down the line. Great. And I'm looking forward to talking about the Black Hole on Disney Indiana at some point. Thanks for doing the crossover with us. It's been a lot of fun to discuss a movie that's uh, kind of near and dear to both our hearts. Any chance I get to pop up on Disney Indiana, I'm going to jump on. So thank you guys for bringing me into the fold for this one again. Well, now I've been scrolling down through Amazon and seeing all the other things for 20,000 leagues that's for sale. And this podcast is going to cost me money, I have a feeling. say that because i had scott and tracy on the line disney indiana is one of my favorite disney podcasts if you are interested in anything mouse related you got to check it out disneyindiana.com or follow the link in the show notes disney indiana is one of the perma links a permanent link in the links section of our website at monsterkidradio.net you're also going to find a link in this week's show notes to kadoja 
which is that independently produced giant monster comic that Keith Foster mentioned in the last episode. We played the little promo. Look that up, kadoja.com, or go to Kickstarter and look up Kadoja and see how you can help make that graphic novel a success. I know I want to see the book. Like I told you last time, Monster Kid Radio approves. And speaking of Kickstarter, I wanted to mention something that was brought to my attention on Facebook when he announced it. Remember when we had Randy Bowser on the show? He's the man behind the one-man play Karloff that's coming up here in November. There was a successful Kickstarter campaign to fund this project. I can't wait to see the play. Well, there's been a couple of changes. He's finally settled on dates for when the play is going to take place. Friday and Saturday, November 14th and 15th, and then again Friday, Saturday, November 21st and 22nd. It's happening at the Level B Theater Pub in Salem, Oregon. When we had him on the show, we talked about who was going to be playing Karloff. There have been some changes, and now he himself will be filling the role. Now, when we were recording, I don't know if you remember, but he did a little bit of a Karloff impersonation, and it was like talking to the man himself. I can't wait to see him on stage as Karloff. Additionally, the November 14th and November 15th performances, you know who's going to be in the audience? Boris Karloff's daughter herself, Sarah Karloff, will be there. Well, I think I just figured out which weekend I'm going to go see the play. Now, next week on Monster Kid Radio, I'm going to bring you some more recordings from Rose City Comic Con. Keith Foster is one of the guys that I talked to. I also talked to Kyle Yount from the Kaiju cast and illustrator Devin Devereaux. So I've got those recordings. That's going to be next week on Tuesday's show. And then on Thursday's show, which is on October 2nd, the first episode in the month of October, I'm going to do a little bit of feedback and then I've got something else that I'm brewing up that we're going to unleash on the Monster Kid Radio listeners on that episode. So I hope to see you back here next week at monsterkidradio.net or iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast catcher you use to listen to the podcast. Thank you for listening. Talk to everybody next week. Remember, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Dead Can Surf. That belongs solely to the Dead Rocks. You can find it at their album, International Brazilian Surfs. Look them up at their website at deadrocks.com.br or follow the link in the show notes. If you head over there and buy their album, tell them that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Have a great rest of your week. Good weekend, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>